Okay, so Isaiah, this idea of near and far fulfillment. Okay, so Isaiah 17, 4, or 7.14 is the passage, and we talked about this for those who are at Christmas. Um, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's still much contention around this verse. A lot of the contention revolves around one word. But the concept is, when you first read this and you're reading through Isaiah, one of the things that would jump out to a person is, how does this become a messianic promise? Did the people of the time see this as a messianic promise? And I'll show you that this passage is actually giving to King Ahaz, and King Ahaz was looking for a fulfillment at that present moment. He wasn't thinking off to a Messiah. So, why is biblical prophecy so complicated? Why could the prophets not just said, one day a couple named Mary and Joseph will arrive at Bethlehem and a child will be born to Mary and he will be called Jesus who will be the heir of David, the king of Israel and the savior of the world. Have you ever wondered that when you've read prophecy? Anybody? Wish it was a little bit easier? Carol likes the challenge. <laughs> well, why can't it be this easy? No idea? He answered his own question. It's an open invitation to dozens of Mary and Joseph to turn up at Bethlehem just as the woman was to give birth. The time of preparation for the coming of the Savior must be completed. The event is so significant that part of its preparation is the long, detailed prophetic scriptures that deal with it in an often bewildering variety of ways. So if it was that simple for some things, somebody would have just shown up, well, we're, we're it, hoping that people would pick them out of this. So there is some mystery to it. Let's go back to the verse. So it isn't until Matthew one twenty three that we see this verse picked up and used as a messianic verse in the sense that, hey, this answers prophecy. So Matthew writes to us, Behold, the virgin shall conceive... And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God is with us. And then you can see right below, it really follows right along with 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. It's a direct quote. The controversy all comes over that one word, virgin. And it's a Hebrew word, and it's Alma. And, And the contention is, what does that word exactly mean? So... It's used seven times. You can see the seven times. We're going to look at some of them tonight. The seven times it is used in Scripture. So there are people that will still look at this verse and aren't convinced that it's messianic. And some of them say, well, the prophets just, the, the gospel writers just pulled a verse and used it uh, somewhat out of context for themselves and their purposes. So we see it in Exodus 2.8. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Same word as what we find in 714, Elma. All the green are the same word. Psalm 68, 25. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them, virgins playing tambourines. Now, when we look at the uh, Christian Standard Bible, they choose to use go with young women there. Singers lead the way with musicians following. Among them are young women playing tambourines. That choice was based on the fact you're, you're not likely to look at a parade and go, oh, look, 
There's the musicians, and there's the singers. Oh, and there's some virgins with tambour. You wouldn't read it that way. So when the CSB translated, they chose there are young women playing tambourines, which is consistent with the word. There we go. Proverbs 30. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Again, the CSB chooses the way of a man with a, a young woman. It's probably how people would read it. Then again, in Song of Solomon, there are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. Here, the CSB gives an asterisk to it. You could go with young woman or virgins, according to the translators at that time. Whoops, went too far. So Alma can mean maiden, virgin, young woman, somebody of marriageable age, or newly married. So it, it has a, a broad meaning to it, and it always works back to my favorite three words. Context, context, context. It's the context to which you find it that will help you understand what it's saying. So, let's find some context around Isaiah 7. If you go back to chapter 6, we will find in chapter 6 of Isaiah the commissioning of Isaiah from the Lord. And when Isaiah begins to speak after his commissioning in Isaiah 6, he is actually preaching from the Mosaic Covenant to the nation. That's where he's pulling everything from. He's talking about blessings and cursings. So remember back from Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This was one of the curses. Remember they were between the two mountains? And they were going back and forth. This is what will happen if you, if you follow the Lord. You're going to be blessed. And this is what happens if you don't follow the Lord. You will be cursed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth. So continue on in chapter 6. Isaiah will preach, but we learn from God no one is going to respond. They're going to have hardened hearts because they've continually turned their back. And it's a, it's a little reminder for us that it's not up to you and I how a person responds. We're told to go preach the good news. And it's up to the Lord for them to respond. Our part is to preach. And we're invited into that. And we go and do it. And we pray that the God will speak to them. Okay. Also in chapter 6 we learn this. Not all is lost. So don't get disheartened, Isaiah, because there will be a remnant. There will be the, the true Israel. Not the cultural, but the true Israel that's following God will come out of this. So, God's not done is another thing we can pull back from this verse. And we can go back to chapter 2 and we read this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow, up from, flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, then he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So God wasn't done. There was going to be a remnant in Israel. 
And, and God was going to use that remnant. Then we move on to chapter 7. Beginning of chapter 7, we begin to see that Syria and the northern kingdom, what we call Israel, they wanted to come down and conquer Jerusalem. So they were in cahoots with each other, and they wanted to come down and just take out Ahaz. Well, Ahaz, as he looked at the, the two kings to the north and the size of them, was a little concerned with what was going to happen. Isaiah is sent to go talk to Ahaz, and, Ahaz, and Isaiah promises to him, look, the Lord says they, are not going to, they can come down, but they're not going to succeed. And Isaiah is still a nervous, and the Lord says, look, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you a sign so that I will keep my promise. You name it. But Isaiah refuses to test. He says he refuses to test God. There's probably a little bit more going on there. Basically saying, ah, I ain't going to do that. Isaiah gets a little upset with him, and he, and he says, look, okay, you're not going to do it, but God is going to give you a sign, and here it is. And that's where we come. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and to choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So 7.14 obviously has a near fulfillment to it. King Ahaz is expecting this sign to be fulfilled in that moment. Not a hundred years later, not a thousand years later, because the sign was given to Ahaz from the Lord. So there's a near fulfillment in the expectation of Isaiah 7.14. So Isaiah 7.17 The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the promise is that the first attack will be repelled and that God will take care that those northern kingdoms will be taken care of in another way. But there's a far worse enemy coming and they will succeed and the southern kingdom will fall. We know that fulfillment comes in 586 B.C. from Babylon. We still have to deal with what happens to the northern kingdoms. So, who is the fulfillment of verse 14? Because we know it has to happen in the near future to Isaiah. We know it's going to happen before the northern kingdom. The sign has to come before the northern kingdoms are taken out. So few people hold this verse as only messianic. That's why it's a double fulfillment. So Isaiah 15 and 16, as I said, suggests a fulfillment in the near future as a sign to Isaiah. So there are three possibilities. Ahaz's son, king, who comes out to be King Hezekiah later, some anonymous prophet, or Isaiah's son. Now, as we continue on in our passages, if you were to continue on reading in Isaiah, you'd come across this in Isaiah chapter Three or Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. And if I butcher his name, I'm sorry. And I went to the prophetess, Isaiah went to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. But before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Syria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So this fulfillment is going to happen before the the northern kingdom, before Damascus and, and Samaria are attacked. That's how they'll get rid of them. So what happens? Well, we're drawing a link now all the way from chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 9. See, in chapter 7, we see that the people are going to be exiled. And as you get into chapter 9, then you find out that this remnant, that God was going to bring people back to Galilee. So let's continue with the connection. In chapter 8, we know there's a coming Assyria invasion. We're told that. That first was fulfilled in 733 and 732 B.C. That was the first invasion into Damascus, Galilee, and Syria. Now, they didn't do mass deportations of people until 722, but the wealth and everything sort of was taken care of. A lot of that was taken care of 10 years earlier. The nation then will be thrust into darkness, but God isn't done with them. So even though this is the beginning of the end for the northern nation, the northern part of Israel, and soon after the southern part, uh, within a couple of hundred years, was going to be gone, God wasn't done with them. So in chapter 9, it talks about there's a remnant that's going to stand firm for God and that God will deliver them. By the 2nd century B.C., rabbinical teachers had begun to understand this connection. Like, wait a second, there's, there's more here. And it was in the 2nd century that they began to say, there's a connection from Isaiah 7.14 all the way through to chapter 9. There's something going on here. Something more than just what happened in the day of Ahaz the king. And they, they came to this conclusion from, whoops, from these verses in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, of the increase of his government of, and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, what did I do? Sorry, that was me. I got it back. <laughs> Wrong one. Whoops. I missed that. I knew I went to. I said, I'm missing some words here. For unto us a child is born and a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then it's the rest of the verses. I thought I was missing something. So how do we draw this conclusion? Because Matthew comes to this conclusion. So Matthew has connected Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9. And he does it on a few points. We have to remember that Matthew walked with Christ for three years. So when he writes this, he'd already been underneath the teaching of the Lord. And we know we do not have all the teaching of Christ. We have all that we need. We have all that God wants us to have. But we're told that of all the writings, they would just fill book after book after book. But Matthew had three years with them. We also know that Matthew would have learned much from probably Mary. I know it's a little speculation, but he could have, Mary would have been around. Mary would have been still telling her story of what happened. We know he learned from the Isaiah connection. I mentioned that. We also know that he wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So this double or near 
fulfillment, this greater fulfillment, the ultimate deliverer to be Jesus, was how the Holy Spirit guided Matthew to write. We also know from this, after Christ's death, he's on the road to Emmaus, and he meets up with the two disciples that aren't named for us, and, he's, and this is what happens. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So when Isaiah, or when Matthew goes back and he picks up on Isaiah, it's, it's not in a vacuum. There's reasons for it. Part of the reason is the, 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 the guiding of the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot of reasons back to, to the whole teaching and everything that he would have been exposed to. So he's just not picking out of a vacuum, as some critics like to say. Okay, that's how we take Matthew 7.14 and say, okay, this is a messianic verse. This is why we say that. Again, it's just not in a vacuum. Do we have a grasp of that? What was going on there? Because that's a lot of what happens in prophecy. Some of the prophecy that we come to, and we have to make, and we'll talk about this in a second, we have to make a distinction with, some of it is really what is happening. It's preaching. So they're predicting not some necessary future, future event, but they're predicting a future event, not from a vision, from a dream, but based off of what's in Scripture. They're simply conveying to you blessings and cursings. And so when they talk about the day of the Lord, they have this concept of a future day of the Lord, but they also have a concept of judgment. That concept of judgment comes out of the fact that God said, if you didn't follow me, there was going to be a curse. And if you followed me, there would be a blessing. So when we approach prophecy, we need to remember a few things. We often hear a talk about exegesis. Exegesis is the careful study to discover the original intended meaning. If you don't try to discover the original intended meaning of Scripture, boy, you can make Scripture dance. And, and it, it's, it's sometimes amazing. I can't think of the verses right now. But when you, when you see certain things posted on social media that are supposed to encourage us, and they pull verses out of context, and it's like, that's not really what those verses mean. But people get encouraged by them. But when you do exegesis, you're looking at things contextually, and you're trying to discover, you're trying to hear what God's saying to you through the Scriptures, trying to discover what original hearers, the recipients, would have understood. Because it was written to them. Written for us, but written to them. So, we need to understand historical context. That includes with the prophets. The big three are time, culture, and audience. When was it written? Who were the people it was written to? What was the culture? What was happening there? Uh, those things help us to begin to understand what Scripture is trying to say in the setting that it was written. We also need to find out, is there anything geographically going on that's relevant or topographical, or is there something political? It's why it's important to understand some of the historical events that happened around it. The concept of Babylon and when Babylon came in and when Assyria came in. Main genres of the Bible. And this is important. We showed this briefly last week. We'll go through them for a second, but let's just briefly go over them. There's the law. 
Deuteronomy is a good example of that. There's historical books. Kings, the Gospels represent biographies. There's wisdom literature, Proverbs. There's poetry and prose, which you'll find in the Psalms. The epistles are letters. First Timothy is an example. Prophecy is Micah. And apocalyptic literature, which is a little bit different than prophecy, is Daniel and Revelation. Now, that's a general broad, because there's bits and pieces. There's tons of narrative throughout all of Scripture. So when we talk about the law, we're talking about the moral teachings, the Ten Commandments. We're talking about ancient civic and ceremonial duties that sometimes seem really foreign to us. Right? Sometimes when you read through some of the ceremonial law, you scratch your head and you go, what? We have the same problem, just to give you an idea. So we're trying to look back thousands of years and go, okay, what, what was meant when that was written? How do we understand that? Well, we still have problems in our day. Did you know it's illegal to scare the king? In Canada, it's illegal. It used to say queen, but they had to rewrite it recently. So it's illegal to scare the king. So according to the criminal code, it's illegal anywhere in Canada to run around and scare the king. And the reason comes back all the way back to the Treason Act in 1842. And it was created in a response that there was someone in Britain that pulled a gun on Queen Victoria, though he never fired it. He was just trying to scare the queen. So there now is a law in Canada on the book. So if you saw that, it's illegal to scare the king, you'd be like, what? Same thing when you read the law. Here's some other weird ones. It's illegal to create and possess and sell crime comics. Crime comics are illegal in Canada. So Superman, Batman, all those Marvel comics are actually illegal. But they don't process that, but it's still on the books and no one's ever taken it off. It's against the law to use a dog sled on a sidewalk in the town of Hay River in the Northwest Territories. I'll let you look that one up to find out why. It's also forbidden to own a pet rat in Alberta. It's illegal to paint a wooden ladder in Alberta. Okay, are you in trouble there, Brian? <laughs> it's it technically, although they don't enforce this, it's illegal to swear in a public park in Toronto. In Oshawa, it's against the law to climb a tree. And in Halifax, taxi drivers can't wear T-shirts. And there's reasons for all those. That's the difficulty sometimes when you approach Scripture. There are reasons, and I'll be honest, sometimes we just don't know. We have some idea. We can put some of it around there, but sometimes we just don't know. Okay, one of the other is historical, historical narrative. This is where a really good knowledge of secular history is imperative. It's written in order to convey specific messages to us, message or message to us, and that's where it's so important. Context, context, context. To read it as it's meant to be read, as one whole historical narrative. Because there's going to be main themes and sub-themes, especially when we started going through biographies, because that's much of what the Gospels are. They're bi biographies. But remember, when they write the Gospels, they're not always interested in chronological order. We are, they are not. And sometimes it's hard to piece it all together, but it helps to. Then there's wisdom literature, a mixture of poetry and prose in the form of dialogues, memoirs, collections of wise sayings. It's practical teaching for skillful living so you can live life skillfully. 
And we have to remember, wisdom literature is not promises. It's not saying just because you teach a child that he should, he's not going to depart from this. It's a proverb. Proverbially, if you put the time in with your child and you train them up in the way of the Lord, more times than not, they will still walk with the Lord. But it's not a guarantee. Because we, have, we pray for people regularly at this church who have had children who they've poured their lives into that today don't walk with the Lord. Right? It breaks our hearts. I know it breaks the parents' hearts because I've had some of them talk to me. So we can't look at wisdom literature and say, oh, this is a guarantee, because that's not why it was written. Then there's poetry. And I don't understand poetry, so we'll move on. Um, The one thing about poetry is there's lots of symbolism, there's lots of imagery, but when we start to use it for theology, we've got to be very careful. We've got to make sure that it frames properly with the rest of Scripture. So it can tell truths, but if you're hanging on to something as, as... as a doctrinal, this is my position, and all you have is the Psalms to go by, be a little careful in regards to that. Then there's the epistles. They contain um, the letters uh, uh, from, from Paul, or many of them, and from the other apostles that wrote back then. One thing with them, again, is context, context, context. They're letters. We have to treat them as letters. There's a reason for why they're written. We have to follow that. They're great because they're rich in propositional truth, but they're also personal in nature. They're written to someone. They're written for an occasion, which means they have a purpose. But it's great because it brings to life for us theological truths. It brings to life to us implications and how they were worked out in the first century church. It gives us a little snapshot of what those churches were like. And then we have prophecy. Messages of rebuke or encouragement for God's people. They were preaching to the people often. Their, their combination of the poetry, um, their express and oracles and visions that they have received from God, they're, they're rich with metaphors and symbolism, and they can be very difficult for us because they're pulling from symbolism and, and they're pulling from things that we might not have quite all the context to understand what's going on. And we have to try to understand what's happening there. And oftentimes, one of the great things to do when we start doing prophecy or prophets is to look back what was said before. Because we've got to remember, Scripture is progressive in the sense that it's given to us little bits at a time. We're not given the whole story all at once. So we have to remember that there are things that we can look back and say, okay, wait a second, this was used back here and said back here. What did they mean there? Is that applicable to what's being said here? And then last, we have apocalyptic literature. A specific form of prophecy is how I look at it. It is full of symbols and imagery. Um, it often talks about the, the, dooming, the doomsday or the pending destruction and disaster. So we talk about the day of the Lord. Some people use day of reckoning. And in it, when you read it, it's, it's strange, it's Bizarre imagery at times. talks about catastrophe. It talks about these huge events. And sometimes it's hard to explain. And when people talk about prophecy, more times than not, they're talking about apocalyptic literature when they talk about it in the church. And prophecy is bigger than that. Prophecy is Jonah. 
prophecy, they're the prophets, and they're, they're proclaiming the truth based on the covenant. And we have to remember that's part of it too. So when we, distinct, we need to distinguish between when we start talking about prophecy and when we start talking about apocalyptic. And, and most people, when they talk about prophecy, are, are really meaning apocalyptic. That what's going to happen in the end times? Am I going pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Am I a post-millennial, pre-millennial? And we'll talk about some of those things as we get in the weeks ahead. We also have to remember we approach Scripture, and this is all Scripture, that literary devices are at play. That, that the, the people, they may have been simple fishermen, but they wrote, and they wrote the same way that we write. They would have literary, they might not call them simile, I don't know what they're called in Hebrew, but they'd have metaphors and imagery and symbolism, and they might flash back to something and bring it forward. There's foreshadowing. There's allegory at times. There's irony. There's hyperbole. And we have to be able to recognize that. So when we talk about that we read the Bible literally, we do, but we read it understanding that there is hyperbole. There is irony at times. And we have to recognize that as we come to Scripture. Otherwise, we can begin to make Scripture say whatever we want. And that's the danger. And if, if I remember one day, I was so shocked at this. I was doing something at a United Church for finances for newly married couples. And I knew the pastor. knew him really well. And he wanted to make a point about generosity. And he stood up in front of everybody. And I, he just doesn't have a very big God. But he, he looked and he said, we really know that the, the story of the five loaves and, and the two fishes was all about generosity. And I thought, what? I was in the other room. He says, yes. Once the little boy was willing to bring up his five loaves and two fish, all of a sudden everybody else took their lunches out. And there was enough to share. So when you come to marriage, you have to share. I'm thinking, how do you get that out of Scripture? And that's what can happen. You need to come to Scripture with the proper basis or you're going to get a lot of things out of it. So next time we're together, we're going to look at the purpose of prophecy and then we'll see how far we go maybe into looking at some prophecy and how we, we push that forward. So I'm not sure exactly which one I'm going to tackle yet, but we'll look at what we're going to tackle. But we're going to talk about why prophecy exists for us today and what we can get from it. And then we'll start making our way into it a little bit deeper and we'll figure out from there exactly how many weeks we'll take to go through it but so when you approach scripture that's good for prophecy but that's really good for remembering everything we do in scripture has to come from that historical grammatical way otherwise you're going to make up things and you're going to say things and especially when you get into prophecy it's hard enough to, to kind of make sure you're getting it where it's supposed to be going because a lot of that symbolism that's there let's close in prayer Father, we thank you for, again, for your love and, and for your word. And Father, we pray that, as, as it says in Timothy, that we'll study to show ourselves approved. That, yes, there, there's great benefit to, to reading Scripture. But, there's, but we're so privileged to have the Word of God, to have the Bible, that we can not only read it and memorize, and, and, and as they've done for so many years, but we can study and we can compare notes and and we can look at word studies, and there's so much that we can do. We're so privileged 
And Father, it's so disheartening to see so many in so many churches in Canada and, and across the world that seem to be biblically illiterate when there is so much available to us. And we're thankful for that privilege that we can study and that there is those great resources to be able to help us study. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us and that even today as we think that one day there'll be a coming day of the Lord, one day when this will be all wrapped up, it, it encourages us to, to look and, and, and to witness and to share with our loved ones, hoping that you might reach down and touch their hearts, that they might join us for eternity and they might see your glory and love and care for them. But also encourage us, us Lord, that in the times and difficulties that we're in, that we can look back and say, Lord, we know that you are in control. And one day this will pass and we'll be with you for an eternity. And what rich, wonderful times ahead for us as believers. So, Father, we ask that this week as we go about, Father, that you will just continue to open up doors and opportunities for us and give us the courage to share the message of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the events this week at the church that they might be honoring to you. And, Father, we might be able to bless the community that we live in, in Forest here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.